please do leave that passage open in front of you and let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we come today to remember those who have given what's so often called the ultimate sacrifice, they have given their lives for the freedom of others. Would you in your kindness and mercy point us to the one who gave his life, not just for our freedom today, but for our freedom through eternity. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we come to remember those who have given their lives in war and conflict of various different kinds through the ages. As Jake mentioned earlier on, the First World War, in which almost a whole generation of young men was lost. It became known, didn't it, as the war to end all wars. But it didn't end all wars, did it? 21 years later, the Second World War began, and since then there have been, and as Jake just mentioned, I think he said 27 ongoing conflicts around the world. And in our lifetime, we can remember, can't we, uh, troubles in Northern Ireland, the Falklands War, the Gulf War, Afghanistan, Iraq. And those are the ones that involved Britain, of course. But then further afield, we might remember what's going on that we see in our TV news every day. Libya, Yemen, Syria, India and Pakistan, Israel and Palestine. And as we hear reports, I don't know whether you're anything like me when the news comes on, your heart goes out to those people, but you're left in a sense of helplessness and almost perhaps hopelessness as to how can these situations, these conflicts, ever be resolved. In 1989, the rock band Queen summed up then the mood, I think, but in their song, The Miracle, and they sang these words, if all God's people could be free to live in perfect harmony, it's a miracle. The one thing we're all waiting for is peace on earth, an end to war. It's a miracle, a miracle we need, the miracle, the miracle we are all waiting for today. But you know, when I look at those ongoing conflict situations and I look at the politicians talking about it and trying to resolve it and the diplomats working behind the scenes, it just feels that that sort of miracle isn't ever going to be possible. These are wars that are so deeply embedded in people's minds and histories that there's no simple solution. And often, as we discover, don't we, wars come about because of one nation's desire to impose its wishes on another nation. And so we get a violent clash with the strongest often winning. Bringing it closer to home, I guess we might say that it's not only those international conflicts and wars that ravage our society today, is it? 
I'm sure we all have much more local experiences of conflict in our own day-to-day -day lives, perhaps within families or between neighbours or between colleagues at work or with difficult managers or with people that we bump into in the street or neighbours. Conflict, sadly, so often is a daily reality. And so we're left with the question, aren't we? When will there be peace on earth? Can there be peace on earth? Well, our Bible passage today in Micah chapter 4 and begins, I think, to give us some insights into that question. And there are just three things that I want us to look at briefly from these verses today. Firstly, that real peace when, uh, comes when people turn to the Lord. Secondly, what real peace looks like. And thirdly, by way of application, how do we bring that home to us today? So firstly, real peace comes when people turn to the Lord. We're focusing on uh, the first three verses here. Um, Micah, like many of the Old Testament prophets, uh, tells a story of a nation's cycle of rebellion and then their experience of God's grace. And in chapter 3, if you just have your Bible open on page uh, 932, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 to 12, the prophet Micah has declared God's harsh judgment on the leaders of Jerusalem. Why? Well, verse 9, they despised justice and distorted the truth. Verse 10, there was corruption in business. Verse 11, even the religious leaders of the day were right up to their necks in it, claiming loyalty to God, but at the same time epitomizing everything that was corrupt and dishonest. We don't have to look particularly far today, do we, to see similar experiences of corrupt leadership within our own society. And the result of that we see in verse 12 at the end of chapter 3. God's judgment is coming. Jerusalem and its temple would be reduced to rubble and overgrown. Something that actually took place around about a hundred years after Micah had written these words. What a dismal prophecy. But the Lord doesn't want to leave the situation in that state. And chapter 4 brings a dramatic shift. The mountain that's been destroyed and overgrown in the previous verse will in the days to come be established as chief among the mountains. Chapter 4 verse 1. And people will stream to it in their hordes. <clears throat> I don't know if you remember the great uh, post-First World War mountaineer, George Mallory, the first one to try several times to climb Mount Everest. And he was asked, why do you do it? You probably know his famous reply. Because it's there. I think that reply was taken out of context. He'd, he'd fought in the First World War and suffered huge loss and had experienced the whole of his life being taken away and turned upside down. Nothing seemed to be the same anymore. But Mount Everest was there. But here, 
in verse 1. People aren't streaming to climb a mountain because it's the highest in the world. They're not streaming to climb the mountain because it is there. They're streaming to climb the mountain because of who is there. Verse 2, the house of the God of Jacob, from where the word of the Lord will go out and he will teach his ways. That's the source of peace. Instead of the arrogant and the corrupt leaders of the previous chapter, here are nations coming to the Lord with humility, with teachable spirits, with a desire to know him, a desire to be in his presence, and a desire to follow him and walk in his paths, Micah tells us. I think it's clear that uh, this passage, like all of the scriptures, is urging us to look to Jesus. And we see helpful evidence of that, I think, in verse 3. He will judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. John chapter 5, verse 26 and 27 tell us this. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. You see, Jesus is the one given authority to judge. And he is the one who will bring real peace, ultimate peace. And we read in verse 1 that it's, we're talking about in the last days. Now that's clearly a future date, not yet arrived at, but also unspecified. And I take the last days to, to have begun during Jesus' uh, incarnation and death and resurrection. And so we live in the last days now. So these verses points us to a time that only the Father knows when the Lord's temple is finally established as chief among mountains and all nations will flock to it. Now there's a lot of figurative language of course but it's speaking of when Jesus returns in final judgment and when as we'll sing in our final hymn later on in the service at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus, King of glory now. So, real peace, real peace will come one day when people will turn to the Lord. But what is that peace like? Five days ago, uh, Reuters reported from Islamabad that Pakistan, the government of Pakistan and the local Taliban in Pakistan, who are seeking to overthrow the government, have agreed a one-month ceasefire. They might decide to extend it if progress and negotiations is being made. But if no progress is being made, hostilities will resume on the 9th of December. 
Now, of course, we should be grateful for any ceasefire amidst all that violence, shouldn't we? It's a good thing that people at least have a while when they can think we're not going to be bombed as we walk to the supermarkets. But it's a temporary cessation of violence. And these verses in Micah are such glorious verses to read again and again when you feel despondent about those temporary situations that this world throws at us. A better day is coming when there is permanent peace, dependable peace, reliable peace. Peace that won't be like a ceasefire with a schedule end and an uncertain outcome depending on whether somebody's having a good day and decides they don't like the way that the negotiations are going. It's not peace that will be a statement after a period of negotiation and arbitration. It won't be just an end to hostility, but it will be the start of real and genuine peace. So in verse 3, the second part of verse 3, we see that international disputes will be settled. Weapons of war would be converted into tools of peace and provision. I do wonder whether this might have been a good passage to have read during COP26 this week. And in verse 4, we see that people will be able to provide their own food and drink. Perhaps an indicator that poverty then will be a thing of the past. And later in verse 4, no one will live in fear. Isn't that something to long for? Real peace. Real peace that brings the absence of fear. I I can get quite excited about that world. But I'm also pretty well convinced that there isn't a political system in the world, if you like, that can actually deliver that peace because we live in a world which is broken don't we we live in a world where there is the corruption of the heart where people put their own sinful wishes first and foremost amongst above anybody else's that's where those conflicts come from where the clashes happen so how can we be confident that this peace one day will come and that this peace will be that perfect peace that this passage seems to point us towards. Well, have a look in verse 4. Every man will sit under his own vine, every person will sit under their own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. David Pryor, in his uh, very helpful commentary on Micah, says that saying the the Lord Almighty has spoken doesn't really express the depth of what the original languages imply. He says it's a bit more equivalent to the supreme commander of all the angelic forces in the whole of heaven and the whole of earth. In other words, when he speaks, it's not just an ordinary word. It's not an inconsequential message. It is a word of complete, absolute, global authority. And just as the Lord spoke and creation came into being, do you remember that? Genesis chapter 1. 
So when the Lord speaks, when he comes in his glory, nations will take notice. Even the most powerful nations on earth will bow the knee to Jesus Christ on that day. But that day isn't yet, is it? In the meantime, here we are, living in the last times. So what do we take from this to apply to ourselves here in Banbury during the last times, awaiting that wonderful day when that perfect peace will come? Well, have a look at verse 5. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So just by way of application, um, I think firstly, don't be surprised at the mess the world is in. We can expect that. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. And their gods may be, you know, depending on what their religion is, things like idols or whatever. But their gods may also be the god of selfishness, the god of me first, the god of greed, the god of corruption. They will follow their ways. As more locally, I suppose, will our friends, our neighbours, sometimes our own families. They'll choose to do their own thing and ignore the Lord Almighty and walk in the way of their own gods. So don't be surprised. We can expect that until the Lord returns. But whilst not being surprised, don't forget to pray. Pray about these situations. Pray for your friends who don't know the Lord Jesus because we can enjoy the peace that he offers even today amidst the mess. Secondly, do pray for the leaders of our country. Regardless of your preferences in terms of politics, it doesn't matter whether you like the Conservatives or the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrats or the monster-raving loony party or any other party that you can think of. As Christians, can I urge you to pray for our leaders, even the ones that you don't like. And what might we pray for our leaders? What could we pray for the government, for the cabinet, for the opposition? What could we pray for Christian MPs who are striving to shine the light in the darkness of what was described just this week on by as the cruel world of politics? Well, let's pray that the light of the witness of those Christians shines and is seen by people who are thus drawn to consider who is this Jesus? Let's pray that even those Politicians who follow a different religion or have no religion or have no belief in God nonetheless will come under God's authority and recognize it. Let's pray for them that the Lord may have mercy. And thirdly, um, and perhaps more personally, today is Remembrance Sunday, as we all know. 
It's absolutely right, isn't it, that we continue to remember the sacrifice paid by those young men in the First World War, by those people who died in the Second World War, and through every war since. I would hazard a guess that most of us here will know somebody who's been touched by loss through those circumstances. And if we don't know them personally, we'll know people who, not very far away from us, have had that happen to them in their lives. They've lost loved ones. So let's remember them. Remember those who have given themselves to protect our freedoms. And let's honour their memory. But let's also remember, as we look back with gratitude to God for the lives that those people had led. And with gratitude for the courage with which they fought. Let's remember verse 5, the second part of it. That actually, the true peace that's coming will only come when people say, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Do you know, it's tempting, I think, just to kind of go along with the flow, isn't it, of society. To swallow the lie that as Christians we're a bit out of touch, we're a bit behind the times, the church needs to catch up, or we need to give as good as we get in those difficult situations. But that's the way of the world. As those who are committed as we see in verse 2, to walk in his paths. We're not promised an easy time in this life, but we are assured because of his mercy of an eternity with him. Not just in our lives, not, not in our lives a, a removal from hostility, but a deep inner peace which comes through the Lord Jesus who will judge every man and every woman, but who will enable us to walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen.